Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today to Dr. Hinemore Elder. Hinemore has been a child and adolescent psychiatrist for more than 10 years and has worked in Starship Hospitals, child and family and mother and baby units. She also provides youth forensic court reports and neuropsychiatric assessment and treatment of traumatic brain injury and private practice. Hinemore has been involved with the media too for many years. She was a former children's TV presenter for 345 Live, a daily live show in the early 1990s and of the Bugs Bunny show. And I do remember that in my time growing up. She's had a weekly newspaper column in the Sunday Star Times and is often interviewed on national television and current affairs programs about her work in mental health. Hinemore has also very recently published a book titled Aroha, Māori Wisdom for a Contented Life Lived in Harmony with Our Planet. And in the 2019 Queen's Birthday Honours, Hinemore was appointed a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to psychiatry and Māori. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about her and her career today. Kia ora Hinemore and thank you very much for joining me. Oh, kia ora, wha nama inui, uh, e te waiti, e te waita, e nga rauranga tirama a tēnā katoa. Lovely to talk to you, Anna. Wonderful. The question I'd love to start with might take you a, a little way back to thinking back when you were a child or, or even a teenager. What were you thinking about in terms of your career? I was very much involved with the arts. I loved dance and music and theatre And so I thought I would end up in some sort of creative job. I I also very much enjoyed science, but I suppose I, I got the message somewhat early on, perhaps subtly and not so subtly, that maybe I wasn't the right kind of person for a career in science. I loved those topics at school and I did well in maths and and, uh, physics. And yet I didn't see myself as a person who was the right fit for those sorts of careers. I didn't see myself as studious enough or perhaps serious enough. Uh, I thought that I was quite a gregarious young person and loved the art. So yeah, that was where my, my thinking was at back then. How interesting. And isn't interesting that you know, the influences that we have at those early stages of, of our career. And, and equally, I can't imagine that there may have been many female Māori role models in the science world at that time to, to look up to as well. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose that it was just uncharted territory for the most part. And it wasn't until much later on with the influence of seeing a lot of doctors in the context of my mother's illness. She had breast cancer. And in my dawning realisation that perhaps there was an area that I might be able to be helpful in, in that I could see that for our whānau, the doctors weren't necessarily understanding some of the nuances, the cultural nuances that were important to my mum in the course of her illness and then her passing. 
And I think some of that, whether it's cultural understanding or relationship skills, are just as important as the science if you're thinking about you know, the world of, of medicine. Yeah, definitely. So I was very lucky to, I, I went to see a wonderful chap at the med school called Graham White. People listening who come from that era will know of Graham and know Graham. He was such a warm and generous person at the interface uh, with students and prospective students in the medical school at that time. We're talking about the early 90s. And I actually expected him to say to me, look, you're not the right sort of a person for the medical school. But actually said, look, your marks are are good. Your maths and physics marks from school are great. Uh, You need to go and do a chemistry course and you need to really ace it. Uh, you, You need to get an A. And he sent me off to Massey to an extramural course, which I did. And I did get the A and uh, and that then enabled me to go and have an interview for a place at the medical school. So that was a really positive experience and I wonder if for whatever reason he hadn't been there or if that hadn't been my experience, then I, I would have been put off and, and I wouldn't have pursued it perhaps. I think sometimes you need those sort of supportive, welcoming people there who believe in you and give you a bit of a nudge sometimes along the way. And I'm conscious we've dived into the medical part of your career, but of course your career didn't start with that. Tell me a bit more about the the first few years of your career. So we're talking about television. So I, I came into that quite by accident, really. I'd been living in the UK and working in the theatre, performed at the Edinburgh Festival with one of my dear old mate, Rena Owen, who of course is now a very famous Māori woman actress. And we were in a play together many years ago and I'd done some choreography in London. And so I came back to New Zealand with my baby daughter at that time and was living at my parents' place, kind of getting back on with my life and working out what I might do next. And one of my old school friends actually was working in TV and she said, oh, they're auditioning for a children's TV presenter. She thought that I'd be great. And so I went along to the audition and I got the job. At that time, there was a live children's TV every day, which is unheard of now. So that was a wonderful experience. That was a lot of fun and a lot of discipline involved in live television and writing scripts every day and and being a a solo mum. Absolutely. What were, I guess, some of the highlights, but also some of the challenges of of that time in your career? I think daily television is really tough and you need a lot of energy. And so that's hard. Uh, I remember feeling pretty tired at the same time as loving the kind of energy every day. And so balancing my role as a mum, as a young mum, and also being involved with my mum's care, as I said before, my mum was already ill at that time. So there are lots of complex issues going on for Alfano and I was really enjoying my job. So I learned a lot of new skills and the discipline of having to write on a daily basis. Okay, these are these might seem like fairly low-key kind of scripts to be writing for a children's TV show, but nevertheless, you know, you, you have to come up with something to say every day and it has to flow and make some sense. That is not as easy as it might seem. So that that was a good challenge. I am the kind of person I, I have worked out that likes challenges. And I suppose at the same time, um, really feeling a lot of sadness and worry about my mum and her health 
and seeing her become extremely unwell was tough. I can imagine, and to balance that with the need to, as you said, to be high energy on a daily life show alongside what might be going on outside, I can imagine that's really tough. And you talked then earlier about sort of what prompted quite a major career shift from media into, into medicine. You know, your mum, but also that early interest still from in science was there. Now, medicine can lead many, many different paths. What then prompted you to get into the area of psychiatry? Well, I suppose one of the things, there are many threads. While I was studying at medical school, we became very aware of the mental health issues, the particular mental health issues for us in the Māori community. My little brother also um, had a serious mental illness. And so I, I was aware of that in a whānau context, but really to to learn more about the wider size and shape and gravity of the situation, that um, really touched me deeply. And then I had my first run, as we we call them runs, my first period of time as a a house surgeon was at Te Ahomai, which is the inpatient unit in counties Monaco DHB now just on the grounds of Middlemore Hospital there. And so I had such a great experience there. Some of my whānau worked in um, support roles in the adult mental health sector. And so I got to see them on a regular basis. I really found it very rewarding and very challenging at the same time, working alongside the whānau who were who were in the hospital in the various aspects of that inpatient unit and meeting with their whānau members coming to visit them and facilitating or trying to facilitate anyway the best kind of outcome, the best experience of what it might be in an inpatient unit, which is a pretty tough environment to be staying in when you're seriously mentally unwell. So that, that alongside those personal experiences and this growing awareness about the gravity of how this was impacting intergenerationally and my awareness of that ongoing impact of colonisation, I suppose, really drove me to pursue psychiatry as a specialty. And as you say, even within that, looking particularly at Māori health and and the impacts of that, and then I guess also that further specialisation into child and youth as well, which is in itself so important important for a tamariki, a rangatahi, that in New Zealand we've got many challenges in terms of youth mental health. I've come back just a year ago back to New Zealand from being here, from growing up here originally, and that's been something that struck me. Now, of course, this year has been particularly challenging with COVID in terms of mental health for everybody, but particularly the mental health of our, of our youth. That's right. And it was clear to me early on, and it was interesting actually in my training, you know, not everyone, not all doctors like working with tamariki mukupuna, not all doctors like working with children. A lot of my colleagues said to me, I don't know how you do it. How can you bear it with these young children who are in so much um, psychological pain and suffering? And I suppose, you know, everyone has their part to play. And I I was able to see, as I still do, because I still work clinically, you know, a lot of our rangatahi can be quite full on and it puts, it puts some people off. I really love getting to know our rangatahi, our tamariki, who might on the surface seem to be quite quite difficult or angry or very deeply depressed and um, finding finding ways to connect with them. So that's always been part of part of my nature, I suppose. The other thing I really like about working with with our young people is that it, it means I, I have to work with Vano. 
and I have to think intergenerationally. So I, I think as a Māori mum, as a Māori woman, I've gravitated to that field because it feels like a natural fit for me, my values, uh, my interests, my beliefs that the wider whānau system, the context, all the things that are meaningful to our whānau, those are all aspects that we can draw on as resources when we're thinking about how people navigate their well-being. So I think, you know, it's a tricky one. As far as I know, the only Māori child and adolescent psychiatrist who's acknowledging their whakapapa Māori, there may well be others who have, have whakapapa Māori but choose not to, for various reasons, speak about that or bring that forward. So I do feel on one hand there's an imperative to be across a range of activities and try to provide that support to my colleagues, to the whānau who might be needing a a psychiatrist of our own culture in those places. How interesting you have that unique perspective, but therefore that you're able to offer in in a number of of different areas that then complement each other. Yeah, I I really like that way of, of talking about it. No career is easy. All of us have kind of tough times as and points in our career. What for you have been some of your toughest career challenges or moments? There are a few whānau that I remember that I think I will always remember. And I was thinking about a young mum that I got to know at, when I was at Starship working in consult liaison psychiatry when I was an advanced trainee, actually. And I got to know this young mum whose baby was very sadly in the um, intensive care unit. And it was tough because it was touch and go whether this little Peppy was going to survive. And, you know, this young mum, it's hard to be a young parent in any what you might call mainstream hospital. These young parents, rangatahi parents, unfortunately don't tend to get respected in the way that parents who are a bit older do. And so part of my role was to remind my colleagues, hey, this person is the mother of the patient and we need to be treating her in that respect. Unfortunately, this little baby died and it really got to me. I remember going and I had to go and have a cry in the stairwell. It was devastating for the whole whānau who were related to this little baby, but also for our team. And I suppose for me, because I'd got to know this young mum and had uh, tried to advocate for her needs, it was a very, very sad time. You know, those sorts of taonga, really, those sorts of experiences are precious. They're precious moments that have reminded me as a doctor that life is cruel and brutal and very tough sometimes. And we in health have a unique privilege to try to walk beside people through those journeys. And it's, um, yeah, we do pay a bit of a price sometimes. So in psychiatry, we have supervision, we have regular supervision, which is embedded in the culture of our practice. So I went off and talked to my supervisor about that and talked about what that had meant for me. So that's one of the that's one of the um, moments that I'll never forget, and uh, it was a very very tragic time. Incredibly sad, and I think really brings home for me the work that you do would be intense, would be quite deep, would be quite heavy. And you've talked about supervision being part of the way to cope with that. How else do you cope with the intensity of the work that you do? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do go to supervision. We have all sorts of ways that is uh, manifested. We have one-to-one sessions and group 
sessions with different specialty areas that, that colleagues work in and we, we share experiences of cases. And also I try to look after myself, my physical and mental health. So I go to yoga, I go to the gym as much as I can, not as much as I'd like to but, or as much as my teenager would like me to. But I love going to the gym. I love yoga and Pilates. I also love wakaama. I've got involved with that in the last couple of years. And that is an extraordinary activity and release to be on the water, to be exercising. And actually, for me, it's an incredible sport because it's a way to a sport. You're really connecting with a whole other realm of being. And that's been an interesting journey too, because it brings me back to one of the things that I feel very passionate about, which is this kaitiaki role, this guardianship role that I think we all have. And I'm often using that in therapy and also for, for my own reflection and my own well-being to think about what is my what are my kaitiaki roles of the whenua, of the moana, of working with our whānau, facilitating positive outcomes for them. So all, all of those things, I love music, I love cooking, I love food, I love hanging out with my whānau, my dog, going in the garden. So all of those things help me to stay grounded, quite literally, in, in order that I carry on doing my job, because it's really important to me. I want to be able to maintain my practice and not burn out. I think that is so important to be able to be there for your own whānau, but also for your patients, your clinics, to, to, to be able to look after yourself as well. And, you know, none of us have it perfect, but some good things that worked and help you. You talked a little bit there about the kaitiaki, the, the guardianship kind of role, and I guess that brings me into the, your your book, which you've recently released, Aroha, which, you know, talks about actually contented life lived in harmony more with our, our planet. You know, what prompted you to, to want to write that book? I've been uh, on this journey of, of trying to learn our, our reo Māori pretty intensely for the last 10 years or so. And of course of that journey, one of the amazing kayak or the amazing teachers that we have in those settings has been a, a gentleman called Te Wharehuia Milroy. And he will be well known to many of the people listening. An extraordinary man who was the kind of guru, if you will, of um, whakatauki and whakatauaki, Māori proverbial sayings. And usually he would be teaching those in the whare nui, inside the, or the whare moi. So that was a, an incredibly precious experience. And I really got so inspired by the, the exchange of ideas and the sense of that, the depth of that wisdom and, and using the natural world as uh, a great resource to draw on, to provide life lessons, to provide exemplars of caution to generations to come, you know, to become aware that people in contemporary times are also writing whakatauaki to help us with our modern lives. So I had that sort of bubbling away in the background and then Interestingly, through the internet and social media, publisher and editor at Penguin Random House in the UK got hold of me through the 100 Māori Leaders site that Tiro Ora had developed. And she said, hey, why don't you write a book? And I thought, okay, that's quite a challenge. So I suggested, this is the book I would like to write. 
And uh, to be honest, I didn't know that she'd really go for it because I, I thought it was very absolutely situated in position in Te Māori, but offering Māori wisdom to the wider world, to ourselves, because, you know, we are all reclaiming in a colonised environment these these taonga tukuiho, these ancient treasures that come from our ancestors. And um, so I said, well, I, well, I can write this book, uh, a whakatauki, a whakatauaki, one for every week of the year. So she said, okay, write five and the, the reflections and I'll see whether we want to do that. And so they liked it and now we have this book. I look at it now and I think, gee, <laughs> that's quite extraordinary. How did I do that? But anyway, you know, you kind of get on a roll with writing and I love writing. I, you know, I write reports, I write chapters and scientific papers and things, but writing a more reflective book with bits about my own life, it was a lovely journey. It was a really great journey. I can imagine. It strikes me the role of nature and our mental health is so important. I think about my own mental health and the things that helped me. You talked about going in the, the garden or Wakaama. For me, going to the beach, sitting, looking up at the sky, sitting underneath a tree, those things actually are also helpful to our mental health. And talking actually about that connection, I think for me sits really strongly with the broader work that you do as well. Definitely. And I think this is a whole burgeoning area which we're going to see more of. So what I'm thinking about is there are activities like cleaning up beaches and planting, cleaning up waterways, being involved with activism to make sure that our water systems are healthy and secure. These kinds of things, and when they're done in groups and maybe done in intergenerational groups or as part of a school curriculum, as part of what doctors might prescribe, which they actually can prescribe in Scotland now. These are things that are going to be seen much more through the lens of this is preventative of mental illness and this is a type of therapy. This is a a valid activity. And in fact, even further than that, this is a a necessary activity for the health of, of human beings. So, I, I suspect that's going to become more and more part of services and what services might offer, um, particularly young people, but I suspect intergenerational groups of people into the future. And I think it would be wonderful it is. It's a much more holistic approach. And we talked before about, you know, and I guess some of the specific challenges or a specific challenge that you'd faced in your career. And the, the title for this podcast is The Female Career. I was wondering if there might have been any challenges or obstacles that you faced as a woman in your career. Absolutely. And I wish I could say differently, but that's not the case. One that does spring to mind was actually advocating for some female colleagues to be promoted. And the context was high-level tertiary institution, prestigious group, very clearly, the people that had all the all the boxes that could have been ticked were ticked in terms of their status and readiness to be promoted. And these all happen to be women, and they all happen to be Maori women. And so I took it upon myself to really push this. And I'm sure many of the listeners will be aware there's a lot of paperwork that goes goes alongside these sort of processes. And so all of those things were completed. And yet, despite finessing that process, 
at the at the final meeting around these women being promoted, I was faced with from male colleagues really quite negative comments about this is not the CV of a principal investigator. And that was actually said to me in a meeting. And I thought we'd already discussed this. But anyway, clearly that's important for this person to bring it up again. So I said, well, that's right, that you're quite right. It is not the same sort of CV as the Parker male CV from a principal investigator. And that's because this woman has a long history of working at the interface with research in her community. And so she's been doing that and not publishing as frequently as some of our Pākehā male colleagues do. And then I faced the comment, do you think she's ready for this level of leadership? On one hand, pretty disappointing. On another hand, I think this happened in about 2017. So not that long ago. You think that we've reached a certain threshold and that people are appreciative of female leadership. And we were talking about a woman in her 50s. So I said, I think this person has been in leadership roles since her early 20s, whether she liked it or not, because that's what happens for Māori women in in these sorts of roles. And so she's got a lot of experience, probably much more experience than many of our Pākehā male colleagues in terms of the sophistication and the nuances involved in leadership. These women did get promoted. I suppose I've reflected a lot on that experience and it is unfortunate that, that I think a lot of our male colleagues think that they're being really supportive and they, they wouldn't think of themselves as sexist in any way. But in fact, those ideas, those biases we know are really deeply embedded in people's belief systems and they've been acculturated to that throughout their training. And, and many of these men who are in senior roles now, they're in their they're in their 60s. So they're very much of a mindset, even the ones who take it upon themselves to read about these things and to discuss these things with us, their female colleagues. For men, I think, to break out of that kind of structural sexism and racism, and, and it's also very difficult and awkward at times for us women, um, women of colour, Indigenous women, to continue to keep fighting, really, advocating, reminding that is not an appropriate mindset, that is not a sufficiently robust, rigorous mindset to be with which to be making important decisions about women's leadership. I was also thinking about the Homeward Bound project trip that I went on last year. So this was a global women in science program where I was very privileged to be part of this last year. And then we went to Antarctica for three weeks as the in the culmination of the program. And you're there with a hundred other women in science. And what was extraordinary to me was how we all shared this sort of imposter syndrome experience. And we were also eyes wide open about our the, the institutions within which we work and how they were all, to some degree or another, sexist, to put it bluntly. And I think as you, you know, as you're talking, yes, there are you know, many of those biases that people have, men have, women have, that all genders have in terms of what leadership looks like, what a scientist looks like, what does a genius look like, that we often have those things in our heads and quite often those are, tend to be male constructs. 
But equally, as you're talking, you know, it's not only the biases, but also the structures and the systems that are set up around those that in and of themselves often have bias built in that is not really recognised. As you look back on your career now, what are some of your proudest moments? Definitely one of my proudest moments has been being able to shift one of the one of the paradigms around how partnerships with Māori communities are funded in terms of research institutions and research programs. The status quo is usually that you get some funding for a research program or research project, and then within that funding, there is some capacity for building relationships with the Māori community. So it's very clear to me from, from way back that was not sustainable because when the money runs out, that's the end of the relationship. And that's not, that's not acceptable. So when I joined the team at um, Brain Research New Zealand, uh, which you mentioned at the beginning as the Māori strategic leader, I was able to say, hey, we need a budget line for this. And so that's what we did. So I'm very proud about that. I suppose I'm also really proud that the work that I did in my PhD and my postdoctoral research fellowship, which I was also very privileged to hold, named for Edu Pomare, one of our most famous and, and wonderful Māori doctors, uh, public health physician based in Wellington. And I did that research in traumatic brain injury for, for Māori. And now that material, those resources are actually being used in the community. So I recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, was at the Wilson Centre on the North Shore of Auckland. Just got invited to go and have a chat there about how they might start to use the resources that I developed, which are being used in other rehabilitation facilities around the country. So, you know, it's extremely rewarding when the research that you've done is taken up and used by the workforce and and might actually benefit some of the people that you've imagined you'd want to support and help. So that's that's been incredibly, incredibly gratifying. As you say, hugely rewarding. You know, most of us in our lives, we want to feel like we've probably made a difference somehow to other people's lives. And that's a great illustration of that. And where do you see your career now heading in the future? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm thinking that somehow balancing local and global, I've been trying my best to advocate for some strengthening of the World Health Organization's capacity for Indigenous health uh, direction, policy and action globally. They do not have an Indigenous department as part of their structures to date. They occasionally produce reports. Those are done by contractors. So I, I will continue to keep pushing in that domain because I think that Indigenous communities, of course, we have our own particular needs and we have a lot to offer the wider world, as I've written in my book, about our wisdom, our mātauranga from a Māori perspective. So somehow managing, being available locally and also to my my own iwi group in Muri Whenua, I try to contribute there as much as I can. So I'm not sure. I don't have a I don't have a script for that. I don't have a specific game plan for that. So we'll see what evolves. I think it's probably quite normal to not have a clear plan or or, or script, as you say. But I think it'll be really interesting to see how you can balance that global and local impact. And one last question if I may, Hinamoa, I'd love to hear what career advice you would have for other women. Yes, this is very important. So really get to know other women and develop 
friendships, uh, relationships, connections with other women in your field, other women that you look up to, that you admire. I love to get emails and, and messages from women, students in various fields, and I'm always very happy to support them as much as I can. So I would really encourage women, wherever you are in your career pathway, to think about who are the women leaders that you look up to uh, and reach out to them. Reach out to them and see what they say. Um, If you've read a paper or a book by a woman that you were inspired by, message her, send her an email, let her know. These, this is the way we we operate in, in female culture. And I think this is a very positive thing. We are good at supporting each other. It reminds me of, of a, a discussion we had on board the ship when we were in Antarctica last year with these this extraordinary group of women scientists. And many of us had had comments from people saying, oh, you're going to be on a boat with a whole lot of other women. How awful. It'll be bitchy. You, people will be mean to each other. Oh, can't think of anything worse. And so we came to this experience and honestly, it couldn't have, that couldn't have been further from the truth. So as women, we face the projections of the wider society that are very undermining of our collaboration, of our ability to support each other. And I see lots of evidence of young women supporting each other. So being part of that is important. I think it's also we face a whole range of challenges around balancing the roles that we may have in wider society, the expectations of wider society. So I think the other key bit of advice is really learn to love yourself. You're going to face all sorts of commentary and judgment from other people and knowing who you are, where you're from. For me, as a Māori woman, really being clear about where I am in this line of whakapapa, knowing how to speak te reo, relatively okay, uh, knowing my pipiha, knowing being connected to my roots is a major part of me really accepting who I am and caring for myself. And I think that's a key component, no matter what you end up doing in your career, when you come to have that that litmus test or that yardstick within yourself, it makes it much easier to make the right decisions for yourself. And and even if you find out that maybe wasn't quite the right decision, you're more likely to reflect on that as a learning rather than to be too harsh. I'm someone that does tend to, I have a tendency to be pretty tough on myself and I've it's taken me a long time to, to let some of that go because it really doesn't serve me um, to be so harshly critical of myself. So I I share that because I I think our society does in general encourage many of us women to to really not be kind to ourselves. can only hypothesise what the wider society's agenda is about that. But we can take charge of those things gradually. Wherever we are on that developmental trajectory, I'm 55 and it's taken me it's taken me a long time to get to where I am obviously and so to be at a 20 year old a 30 year old my daughter's 32 we have different ways of manifesting our own self cares at different stages in our developmental journey so i think some kind of care and recognition of that is also really important absolutely and that sort of 
as you said, strong, really strong sense of who you are, where you come from, gives you that kind of groundedness to be able to cope with what life might throw at you and to be able to perhaps be more kind. But I loved you talking about, you know, that example about women supporting women and building those connections and boosting each other up. It's so, so important. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Hinemoa, for your time today and for sharing your journey so openly. I've really enjoyed listening and so many words of wisdom in there. So thank you. Tanakwe. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Mm -hmm.